Hey there and welcome to Christchurch Charlestown. If you're jumping in late, my name is JD Mangrum. I promise you, if you are jumping in though on Labor Day Sunday, uh, as we get to the end of the summer in this weird year, I bet you've been here before. I bet we know one another. Uh, today we're wrapping up a series, Who is My Neighbor?, where we've been looking for the last four weeks at Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. Next week, after six months and 26 Sundays, I went and counted, we will begin to gather again in person for worship. I, I shared a little bit about that at the beginning. So if you're jumping in late, if you would, when we get done or at some point this week, go and listen to The Welcome, where I share a bit about that. If you're part of Christchurch Charlestown, you live here locally, please go and get the sort of how, when, and where for next Sunday where we're meeting. And then if you're from out of town, please go and listen to it if you're jumping in late, just so you can know that we continue to pray with and for you. And, and so you can kind of know that and be guaranteed that we'll be jumping back on uh, to a format similar to this in the days to come. We don't want to leave you behind in the middle of this. You will forever be part of our church family and part of what God is doing in Charlestown. We certainly would appreciate your prayers in the days to come. We've talked in this series, this particular series, about Jesus' call for us to be loving God and loving neighbor and loving self in that order. We've talked about biblical justice and lifting people up instead of passing people up or beating people up. We've talked about biblical compassion and, uh, and seeing people and feeling for them and moving toward them in love. We've talked a lot about how you can't love people that you don't know and so how I've encouraged you to list your neighbors. If you live in Charlestown, list people you know in, in Charlestown. List people you know who are part of Christ Church Charlestown. If you don't live in Charlestown, I've challenged you to list anybody who you might happen to know in Charlestown as well as people in your community or people who live in your neighborhood if you live outside the 02129. We've aimed in this series very specifically to understand how we can be the best neighbors we can in a city, in a pandemic, as we follow Jesus. And so I'm really glad that you're here today as we conclude the series. I'll be honest, at the beginning of this journey, I just cared so much for you and wanted the messages and anything we sort of put out here on video to be so authentic. As we got further into this, I wanted it to be really done with quality and, uh, and now as we go to the end of it, I just want to like put my hands on your cheeks and tell you I love you and you are our neighbor and you are part of this journey and I want us to continue to thrive together as we go forward. I'm trying to listen to the Holy Spirit and what he's saying to us as we begin to go into a new season following God's lead. I want us to look at today at the story of a man in a dire situation and see the example of a neighbor who also acted with compassion, shown in tangible and costly ways. And that's going to be important today. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 10. I always keep mine right, right here in front of me, I, just for the sake of not making it awkward like that. I've been reading from the iPad, but we use the English Standard Version. Remember that Jesus is in the Galilee. He's in northern Israel, and uh, soon he's going to head to Judea in southern Israel to be arrested, crucified, killed, and then resurrected three Jewish days later. Between the two regions, remember, lies Samaria, the area of the group of people that the Jews hated. That They're called the Samaritans. They were seen as sort of half-Jewish, half-pagan ethnic group, and Jews saw them as religiously compromised, morally compromised, and racially compromised people. Each Sunday, I've shared that if we are modernizing this parable, we might call it something like the parable of the good neighbor with the offensive yard sign, or the parable of the, the good uh, 
person in the parking lot with the offensive bumper sticker. Uh, no, Jesus ministered to Samaritans. He, he went into Samaritans. Jesus wasn't afraid of Samaritans, but good Jews wanted nothing to do. And when I say good, I should do air quotes. Owen has started doing air quotes. I need to do air quotes. Good Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. They even went out of their way to avoid them on that map. A good Jew would go from Judea to the Transjordan, cross the river, go up and over uh, into the Galilee, and then vice versa, making the trip much longer and actually more dangerous. Ultimately, many in Jesus' audience that day were asking this question, who's my neighbor? Uh, and they would answer it that good, clean, moral, upstanding Jewish men would be their neighbor. And for the most part, everybody else could be ignored or even hated in their minds. In other words, the lawyer asked what many silently asked that day, who do I have to love Jesus? Jesus is less interested in fixating on who qualifies as a neighbor or who qualifies to be loved. And he wants to talk about what it looks like to love like a neighbor, to love like God does. So with that said, let's jump into Luke 10. We're going to kind of read the whole parable today. We'll start in verse 25 and we'll read all the way through verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The first five books of the Bible, that lawyer would be an expert on these. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Shema, the sort of foundational commandment of the people of God in ancient Israel, and then a command from Leviticus 19, 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this would have been shocking for the lawyer and shocking, as we've shared, for everyone else who's listening that day. He went to him, and, and this is new material today, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, or a denarii was about a day's wage. He took out two days' wages and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think now proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus asked the lawyer. The lawyer replied, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, Jesus' stories are simple stories told to people in their times. They're not usually like allegories where every single item means something deeper and has this deeper hidden spiritual meaning. I've recorded a video actually differentiating between parable and allegory that we'll put up on social media or YouTube or somewhere for those who want to go a little bit deeper here during the course of this week. Jesus' stories may be simple, but that doesn't mean they aren't profound. Anyone can take the simple and make it complex. I was told this at my ordination. Anyone can take the simple and make it complex. It's a gift to take the complex and make it simple. Jesus was a master of this. 
We need to do careful work with the parables to get the meaning that Jesus intended. And then we must seek to believe and repent or obey exactly what Jesus is calling us to. So note today, but if you tend to allegorize where you make every object or every character or every act have this deeper encoded meaning today, I don't actually believe that's the uh, that every object in the story here, or in any other parts of the Bible, by the way, means something else. And I don't want to let you think so either. That's not necessarily good biblical hermeneutics, as we'll talk about in that video. Now, let's, let's dive into the story. A man, remember, is making the steep 17-mile journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. If you remember, that was a 3,300-foot elevation drop. We don't know why he was going this way, neither do we know where he's from. A gang of robbers then jump out and beat him up, strip him down, and leave him naked. We don't know what he even wore before this. They beat him to the edge of death and left him to die. We don't know his age, his beliefs, his health, or anything else. Ironically, we assume they robbed him of money, but the parable doesn't even give the impression he had anything other than the clothes on his back. We don't know how much money he was carrying, or as we sometimes say in our society, we don't even know what he was worth. As he lay there dying, a priest and then a Levite, remember these are two guys, kind of similar jobs. A priest would have technically been over a Levite in the pecking order of the religious moral pyramid scheme. But these two guys with similar jobs from the right families and the right careers with the right morals, all clean and pure, they, they come down the road see him from afar, and they cross the road to avoid him and to keep going. And here comes a Samaritan. Remember, the audience would have thought, now here's the bad guy. Here's the guy who's going to kill this guy. Uh, and the Samaritan actually crosses the road as well, but he crosses to approach him, to see him, and show biblical compassion, though we don't know what the Samaritan believed. After the Samaritan assessed the situation, he did four tangible things to show compassion in action. Number one, uh, Jesus in the parable said he bound up his wounds. Since we assume that the Samaritan wasn't carrying a first aid kit, we can assume he probably tore part of his robe and took off part of his own clothing that he had on to use it to create a tourniquet, literally to bind the wounds of this man to stop his bleeding. It's costly. I don't know about you, but I'm not washing and re-wearing clothing that has somebody else's blood on it. Immediately to the trash can with that one. No thank you. I don't, I don't want any part of that. Number two, he poured on oil and wine. Now these two items have been allegorized to death. They've been given deeper meaning beautifully, by the way, over the centuries. But let me just tell you why Jesus says he poured on wine and, and, uh, and oil. Wine contains alcohol, which in the first century killed germs. And oil was often compounded with other substances that would repel germs and parasites. So the wine would clean and disinfect the wounds and the oil would protect the wounds from germs and parasites. I remember my mom, did you, any of your moms do this? I remember my mom pouring on hydrogen peroxide on my ouchies and boo-boos as a kid to clean and to prevent infection, I can still hear her telling me that's what she was doing. This was what wine would have done in the first century. Then my mom would gently uh, put on a Band-Aid to cover it, Transformers Band-Aids for me, by the way, believe it or not, because oil had a sort of sealing capability. This is what oil would do, what a Band-Aid does today. 
oil and wine like peroxide and band-aids on ouchies and boo-boos. Costly though, costly. Then the Samaritan put him on his own animal, probably a donkey or beast of burden. Since the victim was desperate and helpless to even walk, the Samaritan was walking now while the victim was riding. And think about that. Remember, it's a dangerous, almost straight downhill journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. The Samaritan has risked his own self and certainly his comfort on this dangerous highway to, to ease the victim's situation and ensure that he would be in less of a place of risk. Costly. Finally, he took him to an inn. He paid two days' wages up front and promised to pay more later to take care of the man. The Samaritan sacrificed money for a man he knew nothing about whatsoever and even risked being shaken down later by the innkeeper to square up accounts if necessary to help the guy. Don't know about you, but if I put myself in the, in the sandals of that victim, I could easily think room service every night. I would be like Kevin McAllister at the Plaza Hotel in New York and Home Alone 2. I can also, quite frankly, put myself in the sandals of that innkeeper and think, going to be some extra charges and expenses on this guy's bill. I would squeeze that Samaritan potentially tighter than the innkeeper squeezes Jean Valjean and Les Mis. The one whose sandals I can't imagine being in is Samaritan. He leaves himself totally financially vulnerable to help another human being. His only words we ever hear him utter, the only thing he ever says in the parable are take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Costly. And that's the end of the story. We don't know what happens to the man. We don't know what happens to the Samaritan. We don't know anything about the victim. We don't know the outcome. We don't know if the victim was or becomes a believer or even if he lives. We don't know if the Samaritan believes or if he comes to believe. Lots of gaps. And Jesus is really intentional about that. He exits the story and then he asks the lawyer, which of these three proved uh, showed by action to be a neighbor. The lawyer, the expert in biblical law who hated Samaritans, can't even say the Samaritan Jesus. So he says the one who showed mercy. And Jesus called him to go and do likewise. Calls us to go and do likewise as well. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy to another person in need. Now the biggest lesson in this story is... Um, especially in the last part, in the last four verses that we read today, is this. And it's the big idea. Here it is. Pretty simple. Love costs. If you want to say it out loud, say it out loud. I, 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 want, you to, I want it to burn in your brain. Love costs. People talk about justice all the time, but it's too often just cheap talk. People talk about compassion all the time, but it's too often just cheap talk. Even in my life, it's talking and tending and, and too often not following through. Well-meaning virtue signaling. I'm seeking this summer to actually follow through and do justice rather than just talk about justice or intend for compassion. Biblical love costs. The Christian isn't loved by God because of her or his love or obedience. Rather, the Christian is accepted by God because of Jesus' sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. God has loved you and God has loved me and God has loved our neighbors with a costly love, the death of his son. So regardless of what you've done or how you feel, you are loved. I just want to say that again today because some of us, we hear it and we say, oh yeah, I'm loved, but we don't really, really believe it. Today, you, my friend, are loved by God. My neighbor, you are loved by God. And you are worth an infinite amount to God. We are loved with a costly love. Therefore, we're compelled to go out and love with a costly love.
Costly love compels costly love. The priest and Levite remind us that a long resume of religious standing or a bunch of checks or smiley faces on some cultural moral scorecard don't let us off the hook from having to do the costly work of love. We are to do Good Samaritan work because we've been freed by the lavish Good Samaritan love of Jesus. Of course, Christians aren't perfect. We certainly don't always get it right. I am exhibit A for not always getting this right. Rather, we are forgiven. But forgiveness empowers acts of love. You have received mercy. Go and do likewise. God's grace and acceptance are free to us, provided by Jesus, and become the fuel for actual acts of costly love and actual justice and actual biblical compassion. Loving like Jesus is going to cost time, money, status, relationships, and more. But I promise you that our lives are a blip on the spectrum of eternity, and whatever we sacrifice here in the blip will be worth it in eternity. Additionally, by the way, costly love doesn't discriminate. And thank God. Like, thank God, honestly. The lawyer asked who his neighbor was because a good person, Owen's air quotes in Jesus' culture, was a Jewish man who could trace his racial and religious heritage back to Abraham, a moral man who was morally good or at least appeared that way, an unblemished man with no handicaps or physical or mental liabilities or disabilities, and a man of means. Anyone else, by the lawyer's logic, he could ignore, disrespect, or totally disregard. The Samaritan, however, like Jesus, does not discriminate. What do we know of the victim? So little. Here's what we know. I I went and made a list this week. We know he was male. We know he was on a trip. We know he had some clothes on. We know he was beat up and left for dead. That's about all we know. Was he Jewish? Samaritan? Gentile? We don't know that. Was he good or evil? We don't know that. Was he religious or not? We don't know that. Was he rich or not? We don't know. Was he an old man or a young man? We don't know. Did he have any handicaps or disabilities? We don't know. Would he have even accepted the help of the Samaritan if he weren't left for dead? We don't know. We don't know. And it doesn't even matter. Love doesn't discriminate. The love of the Samaritan, the love of Jesus, and the love we ought to be exhibiting as Christ followers and just humans ought not discriminate. The Samaritan reached out to him with costly love. And Jesus does the same. And we are as mercy recipients from God to show mercy also. God's love doesn't discriminate based on someone's nationality, race, age, gender, sexual orientation, wealth, intelligence, family background, religious history, or usefulness, perceived usefulness to society. It loves us just the way we are. God loves, loves us too much to let us stay that way. Even your enemy is your neighbor. You can know you are loving like Jesus when you see someone who is nothing like you, uh, who offers no worldly benefit to you, and yet you love her or him as if it was Jesus himself that you were loving. Uh, just a couple more thoughts. Uh, additionally, costly love doesn't wipe out boundaries or make us into doormats. Even Jesus, by the way, took a day off and got away. Even Jesus didn't heal every single person. Even Jesus disappointed others' expectations at times. I would highly encourage you to read uh, the Boundaries books by Henry Cloud and uh, John Townsend, as well as Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. If you feel an unbiblical guilt about you, your inability to do everything for everyone all the time, 
don't be afraid to say no or not at this time sometimes. Further, if you have unrealistic expectations for another believer, friend, or family member, and are putting the weight of love unfairly on their shoulders to get your way, I encourage you to repent and understand that we can be like the robbers and beat people up by misinterpreting or misapplying this story and using it to lay on a guilt trip. Love costs, but don't forget healthy boundaries and the command to love neighbor as you love yourself. Finally, let me say, costly love costs everything. Costly love costs everything. Jesus says that unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it can't produce the harvest that God wants. But a person isn't fit for the kingdom if she or he puts a hand to the plow to start plowing and then looks back. We can't be plowing forward in the kingdom and and looking back constantly at what we're leaving behind. Jesus says that to follow him, a person must deny himself, take up his or her cross, and follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that death uh, to self, for Bonhoeffer in particular, took him to the gallows to die a martyr's death at the hands of the Nazis in World War II. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Elliot made the great exchange in 1956, dying a martyr's death in Ecuador and being killed by the very people he wanted to reach. Love will cost you everything if you follow Jesus. I would give anything and everything to see you sold out to Christ with nothing held back. I would give everything to see my friends get off the fence and turn from unbelief or lukewarm belief to follow Jesus. I was talking this week with a man who's a believer and asked me how it is that a person could not follow Jesus and what that must feel like. I told him, I bet it feels pretty nice. Probably saves them a lot of risk, a lot of inconvenience, a lot of death to self, a lot of caring for others, a lot of money, a lot of dependence on God. If you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're looking for peace and an easy life and buddy Christ to kind of wink at you and smile and give you the thumbs up um, and tell you you're cool, but buddy Christ is not going to demand anything of you, don't sign up to become a Christ follower. Following Jesus and his costly love is going to cost you everything. If you're a Christ follower and you find it hard to put sin to death, to live sacrificially, to give and serve where you have so little disposable income and time in a fast-paced, expensive city, to live with sexual integrity, to give when, um, excuse me, to live with sexual integrity in this culture, to walk as a Christ follower in a tough city like Boston, if all those things are difficult for you, but you keep pressing forward in faith, I want to tell you, I think you're on the right track. Following Jesus, and, and I'll be honest, Nat and I have had a really easy journey compared to a lot of our friends, a lot of our church planner friends, a lot of our Christ-following friends. Following Jesus has cost me black hair. Uh, it has cost me steady hands. It's cost me proximity. It's cost us proximity to family. It's cost us the American dream. It's cost us financial comfort. It's cost us the easy life I dreamt for, I dreamt of for my wife. Uh, and for my kids, by the way, and for myself. Following Jesus has caused us at different times to have to say goodbye to dear friends. Following Jesus has cost us casual Christianity. It's cost me sleep at night, tossing and turning, thinking of and getting up to pray for lost or wandering friends. 
And following Jesus has certainly cost a future that I would love to script, but have entrusted instead to God. Following Jesus, um, it costs. Following Jesus has costs. If you're not a believer today and you're thinking about it, I don't want to undersell you what it is. It's going to cost you everything to follow Christ. If you're a believer and you haven't figured this out, look, I'm not selling you church or religion or something, some add-on to your life. I'm selling, I'm, I'm, I'm selling to you the idea of selling yourself and abandoning everything and following Christ, though it costs you all of it. Following Jesus has cost Natalie and I, but I promise you it's been worth it. I wouldn't trade following Jesus for a life of ease. Costly love costs everything. But I promise you, as Jim Elliott's blood testifies to those, to us as he cheers us on from heaven, uh, his blood would say, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The exchange is worth it. Let me conclude the series with an asterisk, and I'll be done. Here's the asterisk. We've talked a lot about biblical justice. We've talked about biblical compassion. We've talked about costly love in this series. So let me say the most just and compassionate and loving thing you will ever do is share the gospel of Jesus with a neighbor, friend, or family member. Yes, we do good works, but we do it to share and embody good news as recipients of good news in Christ. We don't do good works just so that people will come to follow Christ, like becoming a Christian and doing for people in the process is some sort of spiritual bait and switch, but we do it because we've come to know Christ and we know that our deepest, most lasting hope for our neighbor isn't in his or her education, home ownership, wealth, success, or even loving neighbors and doing good. No, our hope in this life and into eternity is Jesus Christ and the freeing relationship we can have with him. Christ followers, as St. Francis of Assisi has the 12th century Italian who was canonized by the Catholic Church is credited with saying, we need to share the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Why? Because when we were laying in the ditch and left for dead, naked, uh, exposed in our sin, helpless, beat up, bleeding, dying, Jesus, the Good Samaritan, holy other than us, yet infinitely good and generous, came to us with costly love, and laid down his life to accomplish our salvation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for this series. I pray that it's something that will last with us a long time. I pray, God, that um, we will, uh, for the ones who aren't believers, that they will count the cost and kind of cross over the line to become followers of Christ. For the ones who are believers, God, but maybe we've embraced a cheap gospel that tells us we can kind of have all of the world and all of heaven, that we can have all the comfort and all of the kingdom. God, help us understand that we have to choose and we have to deny ourselves and lay down our lives and take up our our cross and follow you. God, help us see the costly love we've received and begin to help us live with a costly love. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.